The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it in bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the gospel of the Lord. Jesus, would you take your word to us, and just as we finished singing, would you speak to us from your word? Would you feed us by your word? Would you meet us here this morning in the same way you met Peter and the disciples, so that our lives might be changed? We love you and praise you. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. When you've come face-to-face -face with God's grace, as I have, it changes you. Many of us, like I used to, think that we can mature without grace, but we cannot. God's grace is the means by which we humbly face our own weaknesses and then come to see that truth strength lies only with Him. This is what happened to me, and I want to tell you my story. I want to tell you about the encounter I had with Jesus that empowered me not only to point other people toward the true grace of God, but to exhort them to follow my example about how to stand firm in it. I want to take you back to the worst night of my entire life. Everything about that night was horrible. At dinner that evening, Jesus had said that every one of us disciples would fall away because of him. I couldn't believe my ears. I knew Jesus was aware that we'd given up everything to follow him. Our careers, our standing in the community, even our very way of life. And we'd done it. All of it. And it had all been worth it. And so I truly had no idea what would make him think 
that now we would all fall away because of him. I think I remember him saying something about how the scriptures foretold it, but that couldn't be right. We were his most devoted followers. Didn't that mean anything? It certainly did to me. And so I made sure he knew. In no uncertain terms, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And I had never been more confident about anything in my life. Maybe the other disciples would fall away, but I wouldn't. Jesus was everything to me, and I would prove it to him. I wasn't exactly sure what that would look like, but I was certain I would know when the time was right. But Jesus didn't appear convinced. In fact, I'm not even sure he heard my confident rebuttal at all, because he just turned to me and said, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Now, I want to be completely honest here. That really hurt. Me? Deny him? Not once, but three times before the sun even came up? What in the world was he talking about? Was this what Jesus thought of me? Had my dedication and loyalty to him these past three years meant nothing? Deny him? That's awful. What does he imagine would ever provoke me, provoke me to do such a thing? There was nothing that would cause me to deny him. Even if it killed me, I'd never do that. And I made certain he knew it. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Just in case I hadn't expressed my loyalty confidently enough before, I was sure this would do it. Jesus would know that I was serious, that I was a true follower, that my loyalty would prove sufficient in the end, and that everyone would know that when Jesus had called me to be his disciple, he knew exactly what he was doing. But if you've ever found yourself digging deep to prove yourself, it can be exhausting. If you've ever found yourself trying to convince a loved one that they can count on you when they've told you that they don't think they can, it can be exhausting. Maybe that's why when Jesus asked James, John, and me to pray with him later that night, we all fell asleep more than once. That entire night was so stressful. Everything seemed so chaotic. And to see Jesus himself stressed was more than any of us knew what to do with. Three times he asked us to pray with him, and all three times we fell asleep. After the third time, Jesus simply walked over to us and said, The hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The betrayer he must have been speaking about was Judas himself. Oh, how I wanted to get my hands on him. How could he? After everything we'd been through, after all Jesus had done for him, after all he'd seen Jesus do, was money really all he ever cared about? Was Jesus worth less to him than 30 pieces of silver? Apparently he was. Because Judas seemed perfectly at home in leading an entire army of soldiers along with the high priest directly toward Jesus. What on earth they were doing out there so late at night, we didn't know. But immediately after Judas greeted Jesus and kissed him, the soldiers, each with a hand on the hilt of his sword, stepped forward to arrest him. And it was just too much. Everything Israel was hoping for had come 
in Jesus. All that the priests proclaimed about God had come in Jesus. Why were they now here trying to arrest him? And why were they involving the Romans? The Romans weren't on our side. They treated us as less than human, constantly flaunting their superiority over us and embodied everything that the kingdom of God opposed. So when I saw the high priest, not only among the Roman soldiers, but the very one directing them to arrest Jesus, I saw my opportunity. My opportunity to show Jesus how loyal to him I truly was and to prove how wrong he was when he suggested that everyone, including me, would fall away because of him. And so I pulled out my sword to defend him and I swung at the high priest's servant. I had to defend him. I had to show him my strength, my willingness to fight, to do everything in my power not to fall away. But that was just it. I did it all in my power. And it wasn't at all what Jesus was looking for. Put your sword back into its place, he said, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Now, I'd heard Jesus speak in this tone with me before. And I had hoped I would never be on the receiving end of it again. The first time I heard it was when I challenged him. After he told us that he was going to suffer at the hands of the chief priests and the scribes, be killed and on the third day be raised. And his response to me then was, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Again, setting my mind on the things of man was all I could do in my own power. I realized that then, and yet here I was doing it again, only this time causing real damage. I cut a man's ear off for crying out loud. Of course, looking back, I'm glad that's all I did. Fortunately, Jesus' rebuke came before I even had the chance to take another swing at him. Put your sword back into its place. I remember being completely taken aback. Put my sword back into its place? But what good would that do? And more to the point, I'm pretty sure he'd encouraged us to gather swords just a few days earlier. What in the world for if not to defend ourselves? If not to fight back? What did he expect us to do? Just stand there and let him be arrested? That's not justice. That's not deliverance. But then Jesus continued as if his request couldn't be clearer. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Well, yeah. I knew he could appeal to his father and have as many angels as he wanted at his side. So why didn't he? Why wouldn't he defend himself? Why wouldn't he fight back? That was a side of Jesus that I wasn't really sure I liked. And to be perfectly honest, it scared me. Jesus had stood up to every authority figure he ever encountered embarrassed them when they asked him hypocritical questions, rebuked them when their actions were hurting people, and regularly used them as examples in his teaching of the kinds of people not to be like. So I knew there was no way he was afraid of them. Wouldn't now then also be the time to rebuke some people? Or at least to put them in their place? But he didn't do any of that. And quickly assessing the scene didn't offer me much hope. 
There were soldiers everywhere, and every single one of them had a sword. And here was Jesus forbidding us from using even one of ours. It didn't take long to realize where this was headed or where I was headed if I stuck around. And so I didn't. I'd been with Jesus everywhere for three straight years, and my guess was that everyone knew that. If they meant him harm, and I stuck with him, then harm was coming my way too. And so I hightailed it out of there with the rest of the disciples. Of course, it didn't take long for us to realize that we couldn't just abandon him. Just because we didn't want to face the authorities ourselves didn't mean we weren't concerned for what Jesus was facing. We loved him. We were willing to fight for him. So John and I followed the mob into the courtyard of the high priest. One of the servant girls at the door asked me if I was one of Jesus' disciples, but I quickly assured her that I was not. The hustle and bustle inside the courtyard made me think that everyone was expecting a riot to break out. There were people everywhere. In fact, some of them even had a charcoal fire already roaring, which I gladly stood beside to keep warm. John went on ahead, but I stayed back by the charcoal fire, doing everything I could do to get my blood flowing again. My heart was racing, sure, but I was also scared stiff, and I could tell that my fear was literally making me colder. I kept close to that fire for the next several hours, but there were others who stayed close too. I did my best to keep my head down, only looking up long enough to catch a glimpse of what was happening. Apparently, though, I failed to remain completely inconspicuous because one of those standing around the fire with me also asked if I was one of Jesus' disciples. He mumbled something about my accent being from Galilee and that he was sure he'd seen me with Jesus, but I assured him that he was mistaken. I managed to avoid communication with anyone else until it was nearly daybreak. But then I noticed someone I'd seen before. Ugh. And not just anyone, another one of the high priest's servants who had been standing next to the servant whose ear I'd cut off. I was hoping against hope that he wouldn't see me, but it was no use. It was almost as if someone had tipped him off that I was there. I saw him walking straight for me and knew I needed to think fast. And so when he asked, did I not also see you in the garden with him? All I could think to say was, no, you must be confusing me with someone else. And at once, a rooster crowed. Dear God, I'd done it. I denied him. Three times I denied him. I had stood there, warming myself beside a charcoal fire, and three separate times denied that I even knew who Jesus was. I couldn't feel my body. I found myself gasping for breath. I couldn't see straight. I couldn't think straight. Everything I thought I knew about who I was and what I was and wasn't capable of was a sham. I didn't know who I was at all. The smell of that burning charcoal made me want to throw up. I couldn't breathe. My chest tightened. 
The disillusionment of what I had just done coursed through my body and I didn't know where I was. I didn't know who I was and I didn't know what I was. I felt like the world was closing in on me and suffocating me. For a brief moment, my eyes locked on the flickering flames of that charcoal fire and that's all I could see, burning. All my hopes, all my confidence, all my assurance, all my strength going up in flames like a helpless piece of charcoal emitting a stench of defeat and death. And that's just how I felt, like death. Like everything I had ever hoped for was dead, like I was dead, but I wasn't and I couldn't move. And so I just kept on staring at the flames of that fire. And then after what seemed like an eternity, I lifted my eyes ever so slightly upwards and through the flames of that charcoal fire, I saw Jesus. And the knot in my stomach became hard as stone. There he was, standing, surrounded by angry priests and soldiers, and yet completely alone. And I hadn't done a thing to help him. I hadn't even been willing to acknowledge that I knew him, much less stand on trial with him. I gasped for breath again, yearning for something to fill my body with strength and life, but all I took in was the smell of that wretched charcoal, and I just wanted to cry. It was too much to take in. The smell of burning charcoal, my life as I knew it going down in flames, and the one who came to save the world standing on trial alone. And then he turned and looked at me. He just looked at me. No expression, no words, just a look. And the sheer weight of that look crushed me. I hadn't a clue what he was thinking, but I knew he knew. His eyes told me he knew. And he just looked at me until I could no longer stand it. I broke eye contact, rushed out of the courtyard as fast as I could, and wept bitterly. I didn't know what else to do. I hadn't proven loyal to Jesus after all. In fact, I'd failed miserably. Fear had taken over. It had me by the throat and wouldn't let me go, and I gave in almost without a fight. Of course, I had tried to fight, but for all the wrong reasons. And when your reasons are wrong, you end up fighting with a sword and not with the truth. Jesus fought with the truth, just the simple truth. Those who longed to hear it loved him. Those who didn't, did not. But in the end, only one perspective really mattered, God's. And God honored Jesus' humility. He honored Jesus' truthful witness unto death, and he raised Jesus from the dead three days later to prove it. Oh, what a glorious day that was when he appeared to all of us alive Thomas at first didn't even believe it, but Jesus made sure he saw the marks in his hands as proof. And now we knew that nothing could prevent God's kingdom from coming, not even death itself. And yet as glorious as this news was, I have to be honest, I was still unsettled. 
Jesus had defeated sin and death and he truly was the Messiah. But what did he think about me? Was he disappointed in me? Did he regret choosing me to be the rock on which he built his church? Was he wishing he had chosen someone else? Someone more reliable or more faithful? Was he disgusted with me? I was disgusted with myself. Did Jesus share my view? I didn't know the answer to any of these questions. And to be honest, I didn't like thinking about all the possible answers. The trouble was I couldn't stop thinking about them. It's all I could think about. And it just made the feelings of hopelessness and despair surface again and again and again. I needed to get my mind off of all of it. What I needed was a distraction, something I could do without thinking. And so I chose the one thing that required the least effort, the thing I spent all my time doing before I even met Jesus, the thing I feared I'd need to return to for good if any of my, of my suspicions about Jesus proved true. I went fishing. Several other disciples joined me, but the night was pathetic. We caught nothing. At daybreak, someone we didn't recognize on the shore asked us if we had caught anything. When we said we hadn't, he told us to cast our net on the right side of the boat and we would find some. And we hauled in an enormous catch. John caught on before any of the rest of us in recognizing the man as Jesus. And a flood of emotion came over me. I forgot all about fishing. I just threw myself in the water and swam over a hundred yards to the shore. Now, a hundred yards is actually a long way to swim. And so I had several minutes to think. Jesus was on the shore and he certainly seemed to be concerned about us. He even called to us this morning the same way he had when he first called us to follow him. Was he as forgiving as he had taught us to be? Could he possibly forgive me? Again, without any answers to any of these questions, I finished my swim and walked up to the, up to the shore. And then I saw it. A charcoal fire. And then I smelled that wretched burning charcoal. And I saw Jesus standing right next to it. And I didn't know what to do. The sight and smell of a charcoal fire still made me want to vomit. I had woken up six out of the past ten nights in a hot sweat just thinking about that night, still gasping for breath after thinking I had breathed in that smell again. On one of those mornings, I had even vowed never to go near a charcoal fire again, and I was determined to keep that vow. But here was Jesus, standing right next to one. How could I face him there? How could I be with Jesus when Jesus was standing next to the last place on earth I wanted to be? How could I be with Jesus when I didn't want to be reminded of that horrible night and what I did there? How do I get past this? I honestly didn't know, and it was eating me alive. I felt paralyzed on the shore, and I had no clue what to do. But thankfully, Jesus did. Jesus was standing by a charcoal fire, but he had fish laid out on it. 
and bread. He saw the other disciples struggling to haul the net to the shore and invited them to bring some of the fish they had just caught. And then he said four of the most beautiful words I had ever heard him say. Come and have breakfast. He was inviting us to share a meal with him and encouraging us to contribute to the meal. The last meal we had with him, we all turned our backs on him. But here he was, not only standing beside a charcoal fire, but using it to cook us a meal. He was inviting us to his table. Only his table was around a charcoal fire. And I knew in an instant that this was for me. Jesus did know what that night had done to me, and he knew that transforming my experience of it was the only way to move forward. And so he set the whole thing up. He met me in the place of my most painful memory and turned it into, a, into the place of communion and welcome. And a flood of emotion swept over me. Slowly at first, I took in the smell of burning charcoal and it didn't quite make me nauseous. The smell of cooking fish and bread mixed with the charcoal and then started overpowering it. As I walked closer to Jesus, even the sight of a charcoal fire started to look more pleasant, of course, because Jesus was in the picture. And as I approached him, the warmth of his face replaced the desire for warmth I had sought that night by a charcoal fire. The love in his voice replaced the fear that had gripped me at the thought of being associated with him. And the smell of the fish and bread replaced the stench of defeat and death I'd felt for the past two weeks every time I even thought about that night. Jesus was changing my story right before my eyes. And I knew that he still wanted me to be a part of his plans. But he needed me to face what was plaguing me with him right next to me. He needed to transform what for me was the worst day of my life into something filled with hope and grace. And this is what he wants to do for everyone. He wants to extend his grace into the places where we feel the most discouraged, the most hopeless, and the most vulnerable. Jesus himself wants to be our encouragement, our hope, and our strength. He longs to meet us in those places, those memories, those experiences filled with pain and regret and fear and anger and transform us there with his love and peace. His grace is more powerful than you can ever know. Jesus took the guilt, fear, and disgust that surfaced in me every time I even thought of a charcoal fire and transformed that same charcoal fire by using it to cook a hot meal that he invited me to share with him. Now that's grace. That's life. That is hope. And that is something our entire world is desperately in need of. And so that is why I wrote 1 Peter. Because when Jesus meets you like that, everything changes. I see now that true grace not only transforms us, but enables us to rejoice even in the face of suffering. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. 
Yes, you read that correctly. And yes, I wrote that. And I believe every last word of it. Jesus' glory is often hidden. And it's hidden in places we naturally don't want to look. But when we are willing to go to those places with Jesus, we see him and ourselves in a whole new light. We see him and ourselves through the lens of the resurrection. And nothing is ever the same again. Amen.